We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've seen is a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shootings, the violence, that is not a drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Well, American democracy has always been a part of our dignity as American citizens. American democracy, of course, these days is under severe attack. A lot of good citizens don't like the fact and are fighting back. But a question remains, how did so many Americans so easily give up on self-government, which does require some effort, and instead accept with actual enthusiasm the kind of government from which we actually fought to free ourselves in 1776, that is, a government of, by, and for the super-rich only? Our founders stated quite clearly that our government, quote, derives its just power from the consent of the governed, end of quote. Somehow in the past few decades, most Americans have acquiesced, yielded, relinquished our consent to the few super rich so that they might run everything. How is it that so many of us happily bought into this destruction of our traditional democratic values? Why is it that we've just given up on our old expectations of good schools, safe food, livable wages, and even on actual democracy itself? The ascendancy of Ronald Reagan was perhaps the most significant turning point. This, according to our guest today, Corey Dolgan. Corey, thanks so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive. Corey Dolgan is acting director of the Downtown Center for Community Engagement at Stonehill College and a professor of sociology. He's the author of Social Problems, a Service Learning Approach, and The End of the Hamptons, Scenes from the Class Struggle in America's Paradise. Sounds interesting. He's also written numerous articles and book reviews, which have appeared in anthologies, journals, and magazines. An accomplished singer, Dolgan performs singing lectures on the role of folk songs in labor organizing and other social movements. Of course, I think of people like Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie. Dolgan also has taught at Harvard University and at Clark University. His new book is Kill It to Save It, an autopsy of capitalism's triumph over democracy. Well, again, thanks for being with us, Corey Dolgan. Being of a certain age, I quite clearly know where the title came from. But I suspect most listeners are younger than I am. So if you would, please tell us about that title. Sure. Um, The phrase, kill it to save it, uh, comes from the Vietnam War and the, what I would argue, uh, corrupt um, and, uh, and brutal foreign policy direction that in order to save the country of Vietnam, we had to burn villages and 
really kill the Vietnamese people themselves, um, and that this kind of strategy of mass destruction in order to somehow save and reform things was then brought home to America during the Reagan era as a way to uh, reform public policy by destroying the idea of the public. Well, that's uh, certainly has happened, and that's a fascinating analysis, and I think it uh, describes it pretty accurately. And, and I've been in politics a long time. I was actually an elected official, formerly honorable, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> there's an age-old question people have asked me again and again and again, and I can never completely answer. But your book, Kill It to Save It, uh, does examine the question, and that is, how is it people so often and so readily vote against their own interests. That's right. I'd love to hear your explanation. My explanation's never, I can't do it. Well, you know, I, I do start um, the book off by um, citing Thomas Franks. Tom Franks, I think, is a wonderful uh, social critic. Um, and he wrote a book a few years back called What's the Matter with Kansas? Right. In which he really tries to answer that question, and I think does so admirably by suggesting that um, it's become a kind of political strategy and a very effective one among huge swaths of the American public, particularly the white American public, um, and his focus is on Kansas, that whenever there are real issues about democracy, about economic inequality, about the basic structure of our democracy and our economy, uh, the Republicans and the right-wing uh, kind of cadre of uh, spin doctors and, and uh, gas, you know, uh, real um, gas bags get on the air and start talking about abortion or other social issues. And so, you know, his argument is people in Kansas and by, uh, I would say by extension, really, you know, almost yeah, every state in the union um, will support these policies that are not in their best interest because they're wooed by the social issues that are such mm -hmm. hot-button issues that they feel those are the most important, and those are the ones that they understand best, whether it's flag-burning or abortion, etc. Uh -huh. my, my take on this is that, you know, it's not a, it's not a completely wrong analysis at all. It's quite, it's quite accurate. But that there's something much more deep-seated in people, uh, particularly, you know, American people and particularly white American people, that um, those messages hit home on so that they're not just simply duped or bamboozled, but that, in fact, it, it resonates with them on a very deep psychological and cultural level. And that's really what I'm trying to get out in the book. Well, it does seem to be the case, certainly, that uh, uh, people vote on these uh, social issues. And I hate to say, being a lifelong Democrat myself, by the Democrats focusing so much on you know, the gay rights and abortion, stuff like that, which is a genuine position, mm -hmm. it, it, it loses out. I mean, for example, a big part of the Democratic base has been Catholics. There are a lot of Catholics. That's right. They lose them. They lose them by going for it. But, but the issues, it's interesting. I, I think, as you're saying, if I get it right, that by focusing on these social issues that uh, working people can connect with, they get screwed economically, <laughs> you know. Well, they do, and, and, and what happens is they, they focus on the social issues in, in ways that I think are highly divisive, whereas, you know, if abortion is, is, is part of a kind of what's uh, both women's health and community health argument, right. you could make the, the oh, yeah. connection that not only 
should abortions be safe and legal, but that we create the kind of health care policy and anti-poverty policy and anti-racist policy that makes the idea of abortion um, less uh, less um, tangible, less uh, less vital to people's survival. Um, it doesn't mean that abortions wouldn't happen, but you can imagine that um, if we actually have really good health care and we have a really good economic policy that doesn't breed inequality and suffering, we'd actually have fewer abortions. So, uh-huh. you know, I actually think that there are ways to frame these issues that are not only about individual rights, but they're also about what's good for the community. And one thing of many that Ronald Reagan was very, very good at was talking about these, these social issues and connecting with them. And, of course, we have to look at, at the presidency of Ronald Reagan. But before we do, let's look at Vietnam, which we briefly mentioned. America's yeah. defeat there, of course, was a big factor in his election in 1980. The war didn't end until 1975. There were many sure. lessons of that tragedy. It seems we have really energetically avoided learning any of those lessons. The most obvious is not to send our military to other countries with the intent of imposing a government of our choosing on them. We haven't learned that at all. A less obvious lesson you touch on is the idea that we lost, and that we also lost, quote, our own cherished images of virtue and invincibility, end of quote. Instead of examining that, it seems we reacted against it. Your thoughts on this, please, no, I think you're absolutely right. And and what's telling for me, and I and I and I talk about it in the first chapter, is um, actually going back right before Reagan to uh, Jimmy Carter's crisis and confidence speech, crisis of confidence speech, right. in which he really lays out this crossroads where, as after Vietnam, um, the United States went into a kind of identity crisis about what its role in the world would be if it fact, we had lost this war and we're no longer, quote-unquote, number one. But it was also the moment of a recognition about the global economy and that we would no longer be able to dominate the economy the ways in which we had since World War II um, and maybe even before. And so in this kind um, kind of dual crisis, economic as well as cultural and political, Carter suggests that we can no longer be the kind of arrogant and and almost innocent uh you know big big dog in the room we have to rethink how we are in the world and the kind of gross materialism and overconsumption that had been fueling our economy and our identity could no longer win the day and that washington itself could no longer be aloof from the problems both of you know mainstream kind of working class people but could also no longer be so um uh really so uh, ignorant of global politics and instead, uh, we ended up with Ronald Reagan, who just promised mourning in America. He promised to make America great again. Uh-huh. Donald Trump wasn't the first uh, candidate to do that. I know. <laughs> and, and I think, as the great historian Haynes Johnson said, you know, uh, what we got was a healthy dose of historical amnesia. Yes. And, and, and it was that willingness to kind of give up on the really hard problems and the really important reflections that we had to undertake as a nation. Um, that uh, that Ronald Reagan came to power. Now the problem, on the other hand, as you is um, the problem, on the other hand, as you suggested, was always the Democrats, and the, that they could not offer something much better. And Carter had the same problem running against Reagan. I think that Hillary Clinton had, in some ways, running against Donald Trump, 
which is that they could not offer an alternative vision uh-huh. outside of the kind of neoliberal corporate hegemony that we have today. And until we get a much better sense of an alternative vision, sort of what Bernie Sanders was suggesting, but I think in some ways perhaps even more radical, I expect that we'll continue down this path that Donald Trump is leading us. Well, and it's a path into, you know, the follow the yellow brick road. It's just mythic. You know, it's like, this is what, oh, this feels good. The other stuff, it doesn't feel good. It's hard. That's right. It's uncomfortable. Oh, That's right. my goodness. It's, and we, we'd like to survive. And, you know, I, I can't help but think that unintentionally Trump is, is taking us fast down the path of, of losing any kind of uh, world power, world, uh, not dominance. I mean, I think that's gone anyway. But the rest of the world is seeing, this guy's irrelevant, you know. And it's interesting how we, by denying it, instead of preparing for it, here we are. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. Uh, The show is Keeping Democracy Alive, looking at this uh, book, Kill It to Save It. It's got a picture of an American flag in the Red is kind of bleeding down there. Kill it to save it. An <laughs> autopsy of capitalism's triumph over democracy. Our guest today is author Corey Dolgan. You were about to uh, say something. Well, you know, I, I think that um, Trump is really a, an important figure for a lot of reasons. You know, in some ways, uh, certainly my hope is that he's kind of representing the last gasp yes. of this uh, of this uh, generation um, of you know very, very one-sided and, one, and, and, and very short-sighted uh, corporate agenda. Um, one of the things that has been really um, hopeful for me has been watching some of the reactions to Donald Trump, yeah. um, not so much the Women's March, although that was a pretty amazing yeah. uh, spectacle to follow his inauguration, but the much more local and organic reactions to some of his other policies. Um, most recently, it's the Paris Accords and yeah. the withdrawal from those. I think you're seeing cities and yes. states, yes. governors like Jerry Brown, um, taking leadership and saying, well, we are going to meet, if not surpass, those accords to save the planet, regardless of what our president is doing. I think that's where the, the seeds of what is necessary to change our path are going to come from. Yeah, I think you're, you're absolutely right that... Uh, we've seen people who've never been involved politically getting involved and maybe by uh, trying to kill it so you know thoroughly that right. people are actually waking up to the fact that hey hey this is our democracy here we we don't want to pull out of the paris accord the climate that's accord. right and, and, and the same support i think you've seen um and you're seeing for sanctuary cities yes and communities um not willing to throw their uh, immigrant brothers and sisters oh. under the bus for some really. promise of better jobs. <laughs> and I also think you saw it, um, I, I always say, at the worst places on the planet, people willingly went to airports yes. um, to protest the, uh, the travel ban. And I think, um, you know, these are the kinds of things that we can actually build a powerful <laughs> network of progressive groups around. I do think we can. And it, yeah, it's, it's starting to happen. And I remember during the war in Vietnam, our best organizer for the anti-war movement was Richard Nixon. And I think <laughs> for democracy now, maybe, you know, he's actually uh, helping us uh, recognize that we have something or had something well, 
Go ahead. You know, I'm working my my new book. Although I really do <laughs> do want people to take a look at the yeah. book that's out now, "Kill It to Save It." But but my next book I'm working on is called "American Fascism," Ooh. and one of the things I want to argue is that while these kind of fascistic tendencies have been alive in American politics really from the beginning, yeah. uh, and certainly Richard Nixon brought many of those to bear that there have also been really powerful anti-fascist movements. Absolutely. And whether they were in the form of the labor movement or the civil rights movement or otherwise, uh, that they have been vital in creating what democracy we have had yes. and what's been powerful about it. And so I think we can definitely do it again. But we really have to take a hard look at what we've, um, what we've accepted over the last few decades, for sure. Yeah, it's if you want to learn, you got to, dare I say, learn. Look at the actual facts. And I'm reminded, actually, there was even farther back, Shays Rebellion and the Whiskey Rebellions, you know, were also That's about right. participation in decision-making over our economy. You know, of course, rugged individualism uh, has always been nothing but a myth. Uh, That's right. And, and, and we hold on to that myth instead of learning from reality, as we've been saying. Tell us, please, That's about... That's right. And, and, you know, it's funny because... Um, I, was, I was speaking earlier um, about uh, the you know, 19th, late 19th and early 20th century during uh, another wave of mass immigration when um, primarily immigrants from, from Europe, but also from, uh, from Mexico and Japan, um, met with prejudice for sure. But they also met with a system of public policy and, um, and the possibility of labor unions that allowed um, them to... Uh, succeed and thrive through hard work, but also through protest and organizing. Um, and while, you know, those movements also had to do with the fact that many of those immigrants eventually could become white, and, and I wouldn't want to forget about the strong stream of racism that has held some groups back and others not, the fact of the matter is that contemporary immigrant groups find a very different America, one that is not only uh, similar in its prejudice, but one that no longer has those public systems of mass education, mass public education that really provides for social mm. mobility. It no longer has the opportunities in the social uh, sphere and in local politics for people to make a difference. And so, you know, if we expect our country to always be uh, the bastion um, that it has been, right. then we need to really revisit how we treat uh, our newest, uh, our newest members. Interesting point, because as as we know, I mean, from interacting with recent immigrants, they are some of the most patriotic, dedicated to uh, and understanding our, our Constitution. I mean, they, they're, they're really committed to America, and, and it only makes us stronger, really. And on the myth of, uh, of uh, rugged individualism, Reagan had a myth of, of really hyper-individualism, and he had a, a powerful role in, as you put it, rewiring the American mind and cementing the replacement of belief in the common good with belief in the big corporations' ability to run and govern America. Talk about that, if you would, a little bit, please. Well, you know, I think that um, from the New Deal onward, there were always um, pockets of elite uh, power and wealth um, who wanted to make the argument that Roosevelt was a socialist, uh, Roosevelt was a communist. And that the idea of the New Deal and the Second Bill of Rights, which of course was never passed but certainly no. promoted by FDR, was going to bring about uh, a kind of new sense of the public sphere that was based on 
both a kind of socialistic principles around economy, but really around the primary goal of government as the general public welfare and the public good. And it's very clear, and I, and I cite some of the work of Dean Baker, who's a wonderful economist who's got a new book out called Rigged, that if you look at the politics and economics of the United States from the New Deal up until the 1970s, you'll see that we were, in fact, moving in a direction very similar to that of other industrialized nations, particularly in Europe, towards a kind of social welfare state. And it's no accident that during that time you'll see not only periods of tremendous economic growth, but that the economic growth was actually shared um, right. more than at any other time in our history. Yes. And so that the economic growth during that period of tremendous proportional welfare spending for the general public you actually see more and more people being socially mobile. Yeah. And when Reagan comes into office and, and really makes this great U-turn from welfare policy, um, we find that, in fact, uh, economic growth continues, although very spotty uh, and very volatile, but also that fewer and fewer people benefit from it. Absolutely. And so this notion of hyper-individualism that was so much a part of the Reagan era um, and I would say is fuels Donald Trump's um, oh. ideology tremendously, is, is not only bad for the poorest of the poor and the working class uh, and people of color, but it's also really bad for the wealthy. And huh. one, of the, one of these days, we, hopefully, we will recognize that um, the more inequality we have and the more suffering we have, the worse off everybody is collectively, not just um, not just the poor or the working class. Yeah, it certainly destabilizes the economy, no question about that. And this, this rewiring the American mind, they, they pointed the finger, as, as you explained, they pointed the finger very effectively uh, at, for the lack of good schools and pretty much any problem on some other, be it welfare queens or lackluster right. public schools. It's never ceased to amaze me how... So many people buy into this, blaming public expenditures instead of considering the damage resulting to our common good from sheer corporate greed. The dollar That's amounts right. of resources siphoned from the common good by these, you know, the corporate greed, the, the dollar amount is staggering at the corporate level, but minuscule at the actual public entitlement level, That's right. where people point the finger of blame. Why is it that people don't don't get this? That you know, it's so easy to blame the the uh, perhaps mythical welfare queen, but the real money is the the corporate greed that government is directly serving now. Why don't people get that? Well, again, you know, some of these things are are much older than Reagan, and I would argue that that white supremacy and our willingness to take the privileges that may exist as well as the ability to, to relinquish the blame to a different group of people who may uh, look different than we do, um, the we being white Americans, right. has always been a powerful, powerful ideology. How did you get poor whites in the South you know, to participate in an economic system that disadvantaged them tremendously uh, from sharecropping you know, all the way into the early textile mills, etc.? One of the ways to to uh, keep the working class at bay was to keep them divided by race, and so it's always been, unfortunately, very easy to tap into a sense of whiteness in this country that's not only privileged but suggests that others are to blame for the problems that we have. Um, I think, and I hope 
that one of the things that's happening across the country is not only the intellectual and kind of spiritual support for, quote-unquote, the other, whether it has to do with mm-hmm. um, Arab Americans and or Islamic Americans or, um, you know, Latinos and immigrant Americans, but there's also recognition of what Francis Moore LePay calls relational self-interest. The idea that, in fact, it's not just about protecting our brothers and sisters, although that's a great sentiment, but that, it, in fact, we all benefit from a country that's seriously looking at how power and wealth are distributed and that we all, all are losing, in, in effect, when we allow a very small segment of our population to control our politics and our communities. I don't know why that's so hard for people to figure out. I mean, we've all seen those charts that, that blew me away. You know, I, I grew up in the, in the 50s and 60s, and then there was, believe it or not, a middle class, a large middle class. And now... You know, there's this low, low line that goes on for quite a long uh, uh, distance horizontally and then shoots up like a rocket for the last one-tenth of one percent. But somehow people think those are smart people. That's how we solve the problems. Uh, And it seems that, uh, you know, if we can't blame welfare queens and the other and an inefficient public sector or greedy labor unions, what are some of the actual factors which are really at the root of problems, dragging down, for example, public education. Why is it the schools are so consistently underperforming? What about the idea of privatizing public education, which seems to be all the rage now? And I wonder if you could talk, please, about uh, one thing you talk about in the book is the uh, experiment in post-Katrina New Orleans. How did that work out? And what about this idea of the private corporations know what they're doing? Let them take over public schools. Sure. Well, in general, and I can I can get to uh, post Katrina New Orleans uh, in particular in a moment. But you know, in general, we're looking at a case of planned obsolescence. And in the book, I talk about uh, Lehman Brothers uh, uh, research report that came out in the mid 1990s, where uh, you know the the brokerage house was explaining that education could be to the 1990s and 2000s what healthcare was to the 1980s and that it was generally a public institution that was ripe for privatizing and profiteering, and that uh, they even developed the idea of EMOs, educational maintenance organizations, that could, that could uh, in essence, produce mega millions of dollars and now billions of dollars for private education companies because there was a crisis in public education. But what the research report doesn't say is that the crisis was the result of massive deinvestment in public education in the 19, late 1970s through obviously the 1980s and 1990s and up until today, where the amount of money necessary to educate the public effectively um, should have skyrocketed. Um, if you think about the growth of the population, the increase of special needs, the massive explosion in technology now necessary to educate students in, and just the complexity of where education is today, in order to fund that appropriately and adequately, we would have had to pour much more money than we did. And instead, during the 80s, we cut that money. And so the crisis of public education that Lehman Brothers was responding to in the mid-1990s was really planned obsolescence. And if you think about it as a strategy, first, you elect Ronald Reagan Um, and really the end of Carter, um, Carter was doing the same thing, cutting taxes on the wealthiest Americans 
and the wealthiest Americans' corporations and the wealthiest Americans' foundations cutting taxes so that they have more and more money, de dismantling essentially public institutions, and then allowing the private sector to come in and profit from addressing the problems in the public institutions that they themselves created by disinvesting in them. It's a brilliant investment strategy to make money, but it's a horrible way to run a country. And the two are not the same, <laughs> you know. <laughs> exactly, as you suggested. Trump but can make That's his... where we are now in education. And the probably the grossest element of it, and one of the things that really stifles the kind of movements that, you know, we've been talking about, is that part of what's happening in education is a complete refiguring of what we even consider um, adequate or successful education. Mm. So on the one hand... You know, we implement these high-stakes ta- high tests, right. which have been, you know, completely exposed through research to be meaningless at best yeah. and actually um, right. counterproductive at worst, Absolutely. trying to use yep. student high-stakes testing as a way to evaluate teaching, you know, which scientifically makes absolutely no sense. No, it's ridiculous. But also the fact that the research is very clear that the privatization of education has not succeeded even in having students do better at those tests. So <laughs> even though, even at, you know, at best, the worst measures um, are showing that privatization doesn't work. And so I think we're at a point where, you know, if in fact we will agree that there is something called evidence, that there are mm-hmm. facts that we can do research, radical. measure things... What we're finding is that privatization and charter schools are not succeeding even at the level of the worst public school. Amazing. So, okay, this uh, post-Katrina New Orleans, an experiment there. That's right. Well, I think what you're seeing is a modicum of success, and I certainly wouldn't say, because it would be inaccurate, that there aren't charter schools and private schools that have done well. There certainly are a handful of them. Um, and, and in New Orleans, there are a handful of schools that are doing much better than the school system was doing before. But I think two things are at work. One is you're finding what a massive infusion of money can accomplish. And so there is a reason to believe we can improve schools in this country if we're willing to put the money and the funding behind them. They've certainly um, poured a tremendous amount of money into education in New Orleans. Not sure it's been the most effective and efficient because of the private schools, um, but certainly it has had a positive impact. But the other thing that I think is really important to look at post-Katrina is if you're measuring the success of the schools now as opposed to what they were before Katrina, you're already looking at some of the worst schools in the country. And so the, the idea that the schools have succeeded because of privatization is to actually suggest that um, that you can do better if, in fact, you disinvest in your public schools to such a degree that they've hit rock bottom, you actually can bring them up a little bit with some new infusion of, of mass cash. Oh, hey, that's a not-so-clever trick, but it works. In- well, but you know what? Ideologically, it works, right? Yeah. So, so now you can look at post-Katrina New Orleans and say, oh, look at this handful of schools. Look how much better these students are, are doing, all because they've been privatized. And, of course, you know, that's, you know, if somebody, if somebody, you know, kind of punches you constantly for a week and then they stop yeah. and a week later you say, oh, I feel so much better than I did a week ago. Right. <laughs> 
you, you know, you, you, you might assume that just the fact that someone isn't punching you is a great public policy. So the private privatization of public education, we've seen it in, you know, the, the private for-profit uh, colleges and, uh, you know, post-secondary education and how pff, that doesn't particularly uh, work so well. But in general, uh, you know, I know there's been more of a push for privatization and, uh, you know, charter schools and things like that. In general, it uh, seems like people still at least complain rather bitterly about the uh, public education. No, that's right. And, and, and they have a right to complain about it. Again, you know, we have not um, solved the problem of adequately funding right. uh, public education. Yeah, we just don't do that. We just don't and, do that. You know, I think that, uh, you know, getting back to, you know, blaming certain sectors, any kind of progressive educational policy that comes along um, that requires more funding, which would require more taxes, which one hopes would be paid for by the, uh, you know, top 1% and top 0.5% dramatically, we end up hearing about how the problem is unions, that it's teachers' unions. Uh, we hear the problem is that, um, you know, it's it's low-income communities who don't care about education. Right. And, you know, these have been proven to be blatantly false. But, again, it's not just about proving it. It's about, um, it's about garnering enough of the public to participate in the analysis and then the mobilization to, to really get the income necessary to change the schools. And if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking with Corey Dolgan about his new book, Kill It to Save It, An Autopsy of Capitalism's Triumph Over Democracy. We've all heard, well, you can't fix a problem by throwing money at it. But then again, <laughs> you know, sometimes you have to. And you know, Yeah. I, you know, that, that's one, been one of those canards, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's certainly... There certainly were bloated bureaucracies. There certainly were right. bad policies that cost us a lot of money and didn't have a lot of um, didn't have a lot to show for them. Mm. Um, and yeah, nobody wants to throw money at anything. The question is, what are you spending the money on? And I think that mm-hmm. you know the, the the exact opposite bad policy of throwing money at something is cutting money from anything, mm-hmm. everything. Mm-hmm. Right, so you cut off your nose to spite your face, to use that old adage. You kill it to save it. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, you know, there it is again. Right, the idea that somehow we're, because we don't want to simply throw money at something, although we seem totally willing to still do that in our defense and no. military spending. No. Um, but when it comes to schools, you know, we want people to run bake sales in order to have the money to buy textbooks. Right. Buying books has never been throwing money at a problem. But nowadays, it's really hard for school districts to even buy the books they need. So, you know, why can't we actually do the intellectual, rigorous work of coming up with school budgets so that we know we're not simply throwing money at the problem, but we're actually putting money where it needs to be? And I see that even on the local level that, you know, people have such distrust for, for government at this point, yeah. that when the school board says, look, we need more money, uh, there are actually people who say, no, we don't want to throw money at the problem right. without even looking at the budget. I know. Yeah, it, it, it really is uh, amazing how people just don't see that. And if we could, you know, Eisenhower, I believe, talked about building a highway system as part of our national defense and national security. Well, it seems to right. me one could say public education is 
in our interest for national strength and national security. So maybe framing it, you know, framing is, is so important. And in the category, the book is uh, Kill It to Save It, in that category is the Republican determination to destroy the ACA, also known as Obamacare. How do right. these attacks reinforce the myth that public investment is a problem to be solved? Well, I think that's a really good um, place to look because on the one hand, um, it's a sign of, again, where the Democrats, in fact, have been uh, really so powerless and, and I would argue in many cases just uh, ideologically and politically unwilling to make the case for the power of the public sector. And so you found with Obama and, and I would argue much of, his, uh, much of his administration, the cohort he brought in, that there was just a lot of distaste for um, the idea of single payer, the idea of, of universal health coverage yeah, yeah. Um, paid for through taxes. And so, you know, even the public option got very little play yeah. because of what folks like Ram Emanuel thought were the reality of contemporary politics. What ended up happening was you, end, you had the Tea Party organize to counter any kind of public option and eventually end up with a kind of moderately, traditionally Republican policy, which is what the ACA was. Yeah. Um, and instead, you had this kind of gross reaction to any kind of public policy that would offer people health care um, that they hadn't been able to purchase through health insurance. And so not only were, were uh, I'll finish, I'm sorry, sure, not only were the, were the Democrats powerless, but then the Republicans and, and what used to be the kind of hyper right-wing Republicans um, are now getting their way with Trump care. Uh, well, which I don't think is going to happen, but but who the heck knows? And uh, I, 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 do you sense, and I, I, I think that, let's face it, everything that Obama did, Trump wants to overturn. And I, I wonder about, racism, quite frankly, how much that might be built into current right-wing policies. I can't call them conservative because they're really right-wing. And just uh, if racism is really part of uh, the institutions that we have now. No, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, um, certainly a lot of the reaction to Obama on the right wing was fueled by that kind of racism. Oh, yeah. um, it was very clear in the language and the symbols that were used by people in the Tea Party and others, um, you know, re reviving the kind of, uh, you know, uh, Karl Rove and, you know, before him, the Lee Atwater ability yeah. to use race as a, you know, as a, as, a, as a boiling point in this country to garner support for conservative policies, much in the way that Tom Frank might have argued. I do think that um, that that Trump's uh, overreach in this case may even end up going too far for much of corporate America, and so you know the the fact that the ACA was often criticized for giving health coverage to people who quote unquote didn't deserve it or uh, were unworthy right. um, was very reminiscent of the language of the welfare queen, right? Yes, um, which was always a kind of racialized symbol. But in trying to get rid of ACA with Trump Care, as you suggested, going to things like the environmental uh, withdrawal from the Paris Accords, even corporate America is concerned. Yeah. And so there are many corporations that were actually supporting the Paris Accords because it was, it was so common sense, but also so minor in its infringement on um, environmental standards that they were willing to support it. I think the same became true of Obamacare. 
And so many corporations actually appreciated what the ACA was doing for them. And even insurance companies, to some degree, were given such leeway to continue to increase their profits oh, yeah. that the ACA wasn't infringing on them as well. <laughs> oh, it's, it's sort of amusing. And I have to ask this. The subtitle of the book is An Autopsy of Capitalism's Triumph Over Democracy. It seems to me the two, capitalism and democracy, have worked together for a couple of hundred years. And I have to ask, is it really capitalism per se, or is it what capitalism has become, a certain kind of capitalism? I, I, you know, I'm not totally against capitalism. I'm against greed and, and <laughs> con concentration of wealth into fewer and fewer hands. Uh, uh, your reaction to that question, please. Well, I'll tell you, I have, um, I have some friends. Uh, Klaus Dierkschmeier is a great economist and, and philosopher, and he runs an organization called the Humanistic Management uh, Association. And he argues that you actually can have a capitalism that's managed for humanistic goals, not just for profit. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I think he's a very smart guy. I'm not sure that I agree. Um, I, my, my perspective is that you know, capitalism as an economic system that puts um, first and foremost the idea of profit um, will always be anathema to what ought to be the goals of democracy. And as you suggested earlier, you know, a country can't have the same goals as a corporation. Right. Um, you can't have a country that runs um, primarily to support capitalism as opposed to support democracy. So somewhere between my friend Klaus and I, there, there may or may not be a capitalism that can support democracy but certainly democracy has to be the first and foremost principle. And the public good has to be the first and foremost principle of any kind of collective governing body. And if that means regulating capitalism, right. or getting rid of capitalism, I'm open for debate. Uh -huh. <laughs> but I think we can't substitute capitalism for democracy. And it does seem that, that the government, the federal government at least, has to a large extent become sort of a uh, uh, wholly owned subsidiary. <laughs> of a few corporations. That's Correct. not what it's supposed to be about. No question about that. And another, you know, a lot of this is myth and beliefs and what's comfortable. No matter how often trickle-down economics gets completely discredited, justly, its longevity defies my understanding. Is this another case of an effort to replace reality with myth, destroy it to save it? I mean, somehow people still believe that, well, if the corporations... No, I think that's right. And, and, and again, you know, um, the more we accept the language and the, the kind of culture right. of, uh, you know, this kind of ultra-rich um, corporate ideology, uh, the more we kind of discredit our own experience and our own instincts. You know, people, people know that certain things are unfair, but if you tell them that it's unfair but eventually it might benefit them, they seem willing to accept it. Uh, despite, you know, everything around them. And so what, what I think I see happening and what I hope um, I see happening and what I hope this book is able to inform and inspire is that people are recognizing that, that not only hasn't it happened, but it continues to get worse. And mm -hmm. so despite the fact that the stock market continues to go up and set right. records yeah. and the fact that, you know, we have um, some of the best economic growth at various periods over the last decade, the conditions for most working middle class people as well as poor people has continued to get worse. 
we can no longer work hard enough, work enough hours. Um, you know, we can't get enough degrees right. uh, in education to change that. We have to recognize that these are systemic problems, not individual problems. And once we kind of recognize that, I, I think we might be a little bit more willing to not only go out and protest about a travel ban, but also to protest the fact that only, um, you know, it takes so much money nowadays just to get elected that, um, you know, that, that most people can't play a role in electoral politics, so we have to play a role in grassroots politics. And I think that's a very difficult uh, issue that, that so often if people face, you know, hard times economically, they tend to blame themselves and, and put all the, 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 the power, the responsibility on themselves. And that's tough because, as you say, it's systemic. It really is. And if we can focus on that, I think it would be better, you know, actual democracy. Uh, Ed, I wanted to ask, too, about gun control. Clearly, the majority of Americans support reasonable gun safety laws. Why is it that we can't seem to pass any laws to enhance public safety? How do your findings relate to this issue? Right. Well, again, you know, the research we have um, is pretty clear on the need to regulate um, the sales uh, and probably production of guns. Um, but as I argue in the book, you know, guns have come to mean something very different. And momentarily taking out all of the money that's spent to fund politicians and to hurt other politicians um, based on their support or, uh, or opposition to uh, complete and, and legal, uh, you know, access to right. guns Anything and um, everything. for everyone and anyone. Right. Um, the... The, the, the fact that guns have come to be what I call junk freedom in the book, the, the idea that I am able to own a gun, and guns are really powerful, and they make me feel very powerful when I can hold a gun, but I don't even need to hold the gun. All I need to know is that I could get a gun if I wanted to. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't think about access to health care or free access to education or all these other important social goods that should represent our sense of freedom and democracy. Instead, it's this weapon. It's this, it's this, cold, you know, this, this, this cold metal thing that we can hold in our hand, and when we fire it, it gets really hot, and it makes us feel really good. It's so symbolic of the rest of our politics, which are based on this kind of false sense of feeling good and powerful, even though every time we fire a gun, we're probably firing another bullet into our own democracy. Wow, that's a very interesting uh, uh, assessment there. It has a lot uh, to it. That uh, yeah, it's it's uh, as you say, junk freedom. People believe that that is freedom, and they don't think about you know the First Amendment things like that. Uh uh-uh. uh no, it's just a gun is freedom. Same thing. That's right, and and you know you talk to people. You know most of the people, and even in the past, the NRA itself had supported, you know, uh, oh, yeah. stricter background Absolutely, checks, right? Yeah. Um, if you believe in the adage that guns don't kill people, people right. do, right. then it seems to me, as I say in the book, you want to be really careful about which people have guns, <laughs> because, because you don't want guns to fall into the hands of people who actually do want to kill other people, or, or p- perhaps people who have mental illnesses that might make them likely to want to lash out violently. Um, but we don't do anything about that either, and I think that's because we've bought this line uh, that really is about junk freedom. Wow. The day after the last presidential election, of course, 
the 2020 presidential race started. While it would be unfair, as you write, to blame the entire state of our current economic and political demise on Marco Rubio, the young newcomer to the Senate, how does he symbolize kill it to save it politics? And I do think he's angling once again for 2020, expecting Trump not to be there. That's right. I I wouldn't be surprised. Um, You know, Marco Rubio uh, gives one of his most important uh, speeches in the floor of the Senate, um, one of his early ones, and makes the argument that the United States has never been a country of haves and have-nots, this kind of myth that America has always been a kind of classless society because of its democracy and freedom. Um, And he argues that we're a country of haves and soon-to-haves, and goes on, in essence, to try to exploit his own immigrant story of success based on this uh, American mythology of the individual's hard work and freedom getting them into the position to have wealth and power in the United States. Um, It's this upward mobility myth that I think he's been very, very um, adept at promoting. But again, it's a myth. And if you look at his own story, which has been told in numerous different places, you realize that, you know, although at first he suggested that his parents were, you know, uh, refugees from uh, Castro's Cuba, it actually turns out they came earlier before Castro. But still, you could make the argument this is the great American immigrant story, rags to riches. Well, his parents um, were union members, and they worked in, the, in, uh, in a union town, Las Vegas, uh, Nevada. Uh-huh. And in fact, um, he went and participated and helped his father and the union when they were on strike when he was a kid. And so you think about how important it was for unions to pro- provide wages and health care for his own family, Yet now he's you know he's anti-union, yeah. and he suggests that you know we need to do away with things like the minimum wage because it makes us less competitive in the world. So he's promoting this this these policies that he himself had benefited from, um, and I think the same is true when you look at public education. Um, Miami Dade was actually known for one of the uh, best public school districts yeah, yeah. in urban centers and a very strong bilingual education uh, program, and in fact he benefited from public higher education as well up until law school. So, you know, nowadays his policies are all about how we need to cut funds for public education, cut bilingual education, and influence more privatization in higher ed. So, you know, here's Marco Rubio on the forefront of all all these policies that had, had they been in effect when he was a kid, he never would have actually been able to achieve what he did. And once again, instead of looking at the actual lack of funding, lack of commitment to uh, problems like public education. Oh, just the rich people are doing so well. Let's just let them run it. So simple. Doesn't work. Uh, The Occupy movement was an interesting uh, uh, phenomenon. It was an exercise in demanding more democracy over our shared economy. What, What do you see as its achievements and work left to do? What, what could continue from that energy, do you think, in a positive way? Sure. Um, well, you know, Occupy Wall Street was certainly successful in pointing out the gross inequality and really co-opting some of the language of our economy so that we talk about things like the 1% and the 99%. Um, and I think that those kinds of shorthand symbols and and, and, uh, and pieces of, of language and narrative are really important as we try to build uh, a more successful movement to, uh, to change things. 
Um, you know, the the Occupy idea um, certainly could never have um, had lasting impact in the sense that, you know, once you could no longer occupy the places that people were occupying, you no longer had the foundation of the movement itself. Um, and I think it was really hard for them to continue to transition their movement into something else. But I think you see the remnants of their movement, not only in the, the language of inequality, but also in the willingness of people to kind of go back to the streets and to go yeah. back to mm-hmm. protests and demonstration to try and change the political landscape. And Kill It to Save It suggests that, you know, that's one of the great things we've lost over the last few decades was the idea of shared collective action to change policy. Yes. Yes. And it's so interesting. People, it always has amazed me the last 20, 30 years or so, that people feel like, oh, I'm powerless. I can't do anything. Well, hello, there's a lot of history to show that we can make some changes. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you look at the civil rights movement, the Vietnam anti-war movement. It worked. People came out in the streets. And I think people are starting to get it. And and one of the great things about American uh, history is uh, that populism is a long American tradition. Now that can be abused. Lord knows. Mm -hmm. Trump obviously used it and has installed the government of, by, and for the very richest instead. But there have been other populist movements in our history. Have there been successes of popular movements which have confronted the wealthy and powerful for their antisocial greed? Have there been successes of that that people need to know about? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, and whether it's, you know, things like labor unions, which we talked about earlier, or even the ways in which, um, you know, populist movements elected local officials and elected citywide officials. Um, you know, I, I, I teach uh, in Brockton, Massachusetts, and um, people are shocked to find out that uh, at the turn of the last century, uh, in the ni- late 1900s, that Brockton had socialist mayors and socialist city councilors. And if you look at some of the best work that the city had done um, as, as, a, as a unit, um, it was a very successful city during that period and really up until um, the, the, the 1940s, partly because it had an industrial base, right. but partly because the city policies were driven by the idea that that industrial base would, in fact, support some of the best urban public schools and some of the best parks, etc., um, so we have done that in the past. One of the things I'd really like to see um, people uh, take on is having their their electoral politics and having their movements to to run for office emanate from these movements, not uh, hope to in fact um, create the movement solely to elect people. Mm. And so mm-hmm. you know those people who are already looking at 2020 um, as the salvation for what Trump has wrought. I think could be sadly uh, not only mistaken but disillusioned yes. that simply electing a, a Democrat in 2020 as opposed to a Republican oh, will be our solution. Oh, it's so frustrating when people say, you know, who do you favor for 2020? That's not the issue. It's about taking back <laughs> democracy, you know, That's right. cre- cre- making our government work for the common good. Ooh, just uh, since Trump was installed, there has been a huge rise in activism, particularly among That's people right. who have not been politically active before. Does that, I imagine that does give you cause for realistic optimism about uh, a resurgence of democracy. No, that's right. And, you know, you mentioned Eisenhower before. And if you think about the, the, um, 
the vitality of working class labor unions and the vitality of, you know, kind of the early civil rights movement, even going back into the 1940s. If you think about what the political landscape was, then you can recognize that even a a military Republican, such as Dwight Eisenhower, not only warned us about the military-industrial complex, right, but actually supported so many policies that nowadays we would say are way too liberal to even get elected. (laughs) Even Nixon, as, as awful as he was in so many ways, you know, the politics that he promoted were not all that much different from a Barack Obama. So it's, it's people and it's movement that can shift the political and cultural landscape to such a degree that we move the whole political spectrum back to some semblance of sanity, mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, the almost apocalyptic one we have now, which really is at the heart of Kill It to Save It. Well, maybe all this can shake us up and, you know, like hit us over the head with a two-by-four. Wake up! <laughs> democracy! Hello, we need democracy here. That's what our founders intended, and we, get, we, the people, have to make it happen. The book is Kill It to Save It, an Autopsy of Capitalism's Triumph over Democracy. Our guest has been author Corey Dolgan. Thank you so much. I don't know if there's anything you want to point to on the web that people should look at about this. Um, not, not in particular. There are obviously great sources on the web. Um, Alternet uh, is a great source of oh, alternative yeah. press, and actually they've just printed a, an excerpt from the book. If people do want to get in touch with me, they're welcome to send me an email. Can I give that Absolutely, over of course, yes. Uh, C. Dolgan, D-O-L-G-O-N, at stonehill.edu. Happy to carry on the conversation with folks personally as well. Thank you so much for being with us, and uh, we're all working together to keep democracy alive. It's on life support. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bert. It's coming through a hole in the air From those nads in Tiananmen Square It's coming from the feel that this ain't exactly real Or it's real, but it ain't exactly there From the war against disorder From the sirens night and day From the fires of the homeless From the ashes of the gay Democracy is coming Democracy is coming to the USA.